Okay, uh, again, praises be to the loving Father that we are gathered again to study his words. We're going to be asking several questions for tonight. Question of the night is, why did Yahusha use the fig tree to relate to the end of days? We will reserve that for last. Let's go ahead and look at some of the other questions first. Let's go with this one. Dear Brother John, my grandson found something on the net. That's the internet. Uh, he asked me about the relationship of Mary Magdalene and Christ Yahusha. This is quite a very controversial topic. And these are found on the internet and can be read easily by teens. I don't know if I should ask this because for me, this is a sensitive topic. I want to guide my grandchildren because there's so many materials out there. And he said, for him, it's okay if Jesus had a relationship. I honestly don't know what to say to him. Uh, if you feel what this shouldn't be discussed live, it's okay. You can just reply through email. Thank you very much. God bless you, Paul. So the question is, uh, if you go on the internet, you'll find a lot of things. And that's true, which is why we have to be very cautious and we have to put everything to the test because not everything that is put on the internet is true. We have to be tester. We have to be Bereans. We have to search all things. We cannot be gullible because for sure the devil is also going to use the internet not to give us the path to truth, but to derail us from the truth. And so the question comes up, if you go on the net, you do some search and you will find some articles, you will find some books, so-called new discoveries that purportedly say that Mar Mary Magdalene and Christ Yahusha were husband and wife. And there are people who say it's okay if that is the case. And so uh, what we need to do first is what are some of the, the, some of the things that people are putting out there which seem to suggest that Yahushua, Christ, and Mary Magdalene is our husband and wife. First of all, is that in the Bible? No. Nowhere can you find in the Holy Scriptures that Yahushua, the Christ, and Mary Magdalene are husband and wife. Is there a Mary Magdalene? Yes. Is there a Yahushua Christ? Yes, but it does not mention that they were together as husband and wife. So if it's not in the Holy Bible, if it's not in the Holy Scriptures, where is this coming from? Well, back in 2012, someone by the name of a, a Dr. Karen L. King came up with this discovery. It's a Coptic uh, papyrus. It's like the size of a business card. And she says this new document proves that Jesus had a wife. As a matter of fact, this papyrus, which is like just a piece of um, business card size, became known as the gospel of Jesus's wife. It's kind of funny. They turned a, a scrap, uh, a papyrus scrap into a whole gospel. But let's go ahead and take a look at the content of this papyrus that was discovered. What was this all about? Well, it's basically just a scrap of papyrus, supposedly written in Coptic in the fourth century. We say supposedly because anything can be passed along as truth and authentic. And many people do pass along things that are not authentic, just like what we discussed last time concerning Nostradamus. Remember that prophetic um, decree about so-called COVID-19? which was all fake, 
And so here's a papyrus, a scrap of papyrus, and it's being passed along as authentic a co in Coptic in the fourth century, the size of a business card that contains a phrase never seen in scripture, which is causing all the frenzy back in 2012, because it supposedly says, Jesus said to them, my wife, she will be able to be my disciple. And so this was in reference supposedly to Mary Magdalene. Okay, now what happened around that time frame, 2012, 2013, 2014? What movie and what book became very popular? The Da Vinci Code, right? And so along that time frame, people wanted to ride on that train so that they can be popular. This is called clickbait, right? So they want to be popular. They want to take advantage of this. And so they come up with this idea this professor uh, with a scrap of papyrus and it supposedly said Jesus said to them my wife she will be able to be my disciple so it mentions wife but it doesn't specifically say Mary Magdalene however when experts examined the papyrus you know what they found out a fragment came with another fragment from the gospel of John which was even more clearly clearly Fake. So the consensus from the experts were it is a fake. Carbon dating showed that the piece of papyrus was 8th century, but the style of writing used had died out 500 years earlier. The text appears to match a text available on the internet, including a mistake in the writing. The fragment has no clear origin. No archaeological origin has been given, and the donor has remained anonymous. How convenient is that? The idea in the text tie in rather well with the current vogue following Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. This was according to the research done by Simon Gather Cole. And so when you look at this piece of evidence, when you look at what the circumstances are behind it, it's quite evident it is a phony. It is a Fake. That was in 2012. Two years later, here comes another one. Someone passes the lost gospel by uh, Simcha Jacob. I don't think I can pronounce this. Jacob Vici and Barry Wilson. Yes, Jacobovich. Is that what? Wow, my wife knows how to pronounce that. The lost gospel. And so, according to these authors, they were able to decode, a la Da Vinci Code style, a 15-year-old manuscript. There's a 15-year-old, a 15,000-year-old manuscript, or 1,500-year-old manuscript in the British Museum, and they got a copy of that and they examined it and they said they decoded it. And so this. 6th century manuscript that tells the dense symbolic story of the love, the love between Joseph and Aseneth. And so there is a 6th century manuscript, and it's in the museum. They got a hold of that. And this story is about a man named Joseph and a, a woman by the name of Aseneth. Take note, in this whole book, this, this uh text that being, is being referenced as the lost gospel, not once does it mention Jesus, not once does it, does it mention Mary Magdalene. However, the author said they decoded it 
And so what was their code? Well, they said every time the text says Joseph, just replace it with Jesus. Every time the text says Aseneth, replace it with Mary Magdalene. So when you look at the actual text, it doesn't have the name Jesus. It doesn't have the name uh, Mary Magdalene. You're supposed to replace it. It's supposed to be a code, a code like Da Vinci code. So in the manuscript, however, when you look at the whole manuscript, it mentions other things about this, uh, this Joseph who's supposed to be Jesus. In the manuscript, Joseph was a powerful political figure at the highest levels of the Roman Empire. So obviously, that does not refer to who? Yahusha HaMashiach, because he was a Hebrew born in Bethlehem. He is of Nazareth. He was not a political figure at the highest levels of the Roman Empire. This is why it's easy to dismiss the lost gospel and also that small parch, that small um, piece of parchment or papyrus because it does not teach that Yahushua got married to Mary Magdalene. So we need to be cautious about so-called ancient texts because many ancient texts can be easily forged. It can be made into a phony. This is why we need to have an understanding of how we can measure the authenticity or the reliability of so-called ancient documents. For example, if I were to ask you a question, what documents are more reliable, the New Testament or the books of Homer? We know Homer is a, an author, and he wrote some books, right? What were some of the books that he wrote? Iliad. The Iliad. How many here doubt the authenticity of the Iliad? Anyone here doubt the authenticity of that book? I think a lot of us are going to say 100%. Yeah, that's a reliable, authentic book. If you give me a copy of the Iliad written by Homer, I know this is reliable. Because after all, we studied this book in college and in high school. It has to be reliable. And so if you were to ask you what's more reliable as an ancient document, the New Testament or Homer? Well, before we answer that question, how do we measure reliability? How can we know if a document is really authentic? Well, there are two tests. Uh, number one, the number of documents. And so if a document in question has thousands of copies and the other only has hundreds of copies, which is more reliable. Of course, the one that has thousands of copies, right? Another uh, measure of reliability is number two, the short time gap. And so from the time of the original manuscript to the first copy, how long was that span of time? And so if the original copy um, was 100 AD, and then it took another 100 years to make the first copy, the first copy that was discovered. That's a 100 years time gap, right? And so the shorter the time gap, the more reliable the document. So for example, if there's an ancient document and we know the original was in 100 AD, but then the copy that we have dates to 1000 AD, well, that's not too reliable because the time gap is so long. Right? And so this is how you measure re re reliability of ancient documents, number of documents, the sh and the time gap. 
Okay, so according to researchers of ancient manuscripts, how reliable are the New Testament scripts? Well, the number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or the other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other book in the world. This was according to a book entitled Our Bible and the Ancient Manuscripts, written by Kenyon. Okay. Uh, well, how about the time gap? Well, the interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. And so according to researchers, when we look at the number of copies available for the New Testament, and also the fact that the interval between the time of the original composition and the existing copies that we have are negligible, we have come to the conclusion that the New Testament compared to other historical documents are the most reliable. As a matter of fact, we can take a look at a graphic that shows you just by how much the New Testament manuscripts are reliable compared to other documents. Because if we look, oops, look at the reliability of New Testament documents. Look at the New Testament. The orange bar represents the manuscript copies. What, how many copies do we have of the New Testament? Latest count, 5,686. Well, look at Homer. How many copies do we have of that manuscript? 643. Can you imagine? I mean, nobody doubts. I mean, when you speak to people, intelligent people, and you ask them about the Iliad, nobody doubts about its authenticity, right? But then when you compare to the New Testament, look at how many more documents the New Testament has. And when it comes to the time gap in years, look at the New Testament. How many, how long? 25 years. Well, how about Homer? What's, how long is the time gap? 500 years. Can you imagine that? This is when it comes to the measure of reliability determined by the number of documents, number one, and number two, time gap in years, we come to the conclusion the New Testament is in a class of its own. This is why when you compare documents, like the, uh, like the documents that were used to show that Yahushua and Mary Magdalene were married, when you compare that with what we have in the New Testament, they're so different. You can spot a phony or a fake. And we know the New Testament documents are reliable and authentic. And so we must turn to the New Testament. We must turn to the Holy Scriptures, not to so-called documents that come like centuries after the fact, but the New Testament documents concerning the question, was Yahushua married to Mary Magdalene? We say no. Why? What does the Bible teach? Because there are some who say it's okay to believe that Yahushua got married to Mary Magdalene, but that's not true. 
We should not believe that. Why? Well, this is what Apostle Paul said, 2 Corinthians 11:2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, and I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Apostle Paul was referring to the church or the assembly as the chaste virgin. What is to happen to the church or to the assembly who is likened to a chaste virgin? It is to be married to who? Yahushua HaMashiach. And so if Yahushua is already married to Mary Magdalene, then this prophecy, this statement would be very problematic, right? It would not be solid. It would not be sound. This is why we need to make a stand and believe Yahushua was not married to Mary Magdalene or to any other woman for that matter. And when will this marriage take place? Revelation 19, 7 to 8 let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so when is this marriage of the lamb in heaven? When Yahusha takes his assembly to heaven? And there's a marriage event. There is a celebration in heaven. There's going to be a marriage of the lamb and his wife. The wife is represented by the saints or his assembly. And so if Yahushua is already married to a woman here on earth, to Mary Magdalene, let's say, then this will not work. The prophecy would not be valid. This is why we must uh, reject the idea that Yahusha is married to some woman. This idea, this truth is not in the Bible. Because when you think about it, if it's true, right? If it's true that Yahusha did get married to a woman, don't you think the Bible would have something to say about that? Right? Don't you think Apostle Paul would say something about that? But that's not what he said. He said the church, the assembly, is what is to be married to Yahusha HaMashiach. But we're not surprised. That there are people who will try and convince you that Yahushua had a relationship with another woman. Why? Let's read the book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Yahushua, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. Why are we not surprised that there will be people who will suggest ideas that are different from what we know as the truth about Yahushua? Because Apostle John said when he was still alive during that time, what was already at work? The spirit of the Antichrist. What will the spirit of the Antichrist move people to do? it would move them to push ideas that counter the truth about Yahushua because his purpose is to oppose or to replace the true Yahushua, our king. And what is one way by which the spirit of the Antichrist can cause people to push ideas 
that counter the truth about Yahusha. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 11, 2 down to 4. For I am jealous for you with the, with the jealousy of God himself. For I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that someone, that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Who's the serpent, by the way? That's the devil. He's also behind the Antichrist spirit. And so he is behind all of these ideas being uh, broadcasted nowadays that will try and corrupt our knowledge of Yahusha, right? And so you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Yahusha than the one we preach or a different kind of spirit than the one you have received or a different kind of gospel than the one you believe. So Apostle Paul was really reprimanding the Corinthians, right? What is he telling the Corinthians? Why is it so easy for you to believe what anyone tells you, even if what they tell you is not what we preach to you about Yahushua? This is why it's surprising that there are people who so easily convince, well, anyways, there's nothing wrong with Yahushua getting married to Mary Magdalene. But the point is, that's not what the Bible teaches. Apostle Paul says, why do you so easily believe what people, other people teach about Yahushua when we never preached it? This is why there are people today who believe Yahushua is also God. Well, wait a minute, the Apostle Paul preached that. So we need to make sure our knowledge of the Son of God will not be corrupted. The one who wants us to corrupt our knowledge of the Son of God is the devil. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work. What must we hold on to? The pure and undivided devotion of Yahushua. The pure knowledge about who he is. That he is our one husband. The church will become married to the Christ. Okay? All right. Let's go to the next question. Hi, poor brother John. How will you explain Daniel chapter 12 and the verses 4? Is it really about regarding knowledge and technology and travel from one place to another using modern means of transport like airplanes and automobiles, etc.? Good question. I think uh, we all know what Daniel 12.4 is about, but let's go ahead and read it, Daniel 12.4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and sealed the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. How many here are familiar with this prophecy in scripture? Yeah, I think a lot of us are familiar with this prophecy. So the question that was asked is, what does it mean when it says many shall run to and fro? Does that refer to the actual advancement in transportation and communication? Because nowadays people go from place to place because they have the means to do so. We have the airplane. We have the automobile, right? During the time of the Bible, they could not do that. It would take them days and weeks and years to go to a very far place, right? But now you can go to the Philippines and back in how, how many hours? Six hours? Well, I guess it depends on the speed of the plane. But you can do that in record time, right? I mean, 
And so this is how we understood the fulfillment of this prophecy. Knowledge shall increase. This refers to general knowledge. And so the question is, is that really what it refers to? Because another explanation can be given. And there are those who read Daniel chapter 12 and the verses 4. And they say the part that says many shall run to and fro, it's referring to studying the Bible. Running to and fro, looking at the Bible. And then knowledge will increase because naturally when your eyes run to and fro from the Bible, your knowledge will increase. I don't buy that. I believe uh, it, with what is presented in Daniel 12.4 according to the words and how they are used in other parts of Scripture. So let's look at Daniel chapter 12 verse 4. Let's look at some of the Hebrew words, the Hebrew hot words that are in effect here. So when you look at Daniel 12.4 in Hebrew, our favorite top, uh, our favorite website, right? Blueletterbible.org. You get all this nice information. So when you go to that part in Daniel 12.4 that says, shall run to and fro, it is the Hebrew word sut, uh, H7751, which means run to and fro, go to and fro, go about, like to go rove about to go to run to and to row so basically to go right to move from one place to the next does it refer to moving from one place to the next in terms of land space or is it about moving from one place to the next in terms of reading a scroll or a book because you can go from one page of a book or one spot in a scroll and go to another spot right you can also use it in that context but what does the bible reveal well, in the other, when you look at the, the Holy Bible and how this Hebrew word is used in the Bible, always it refers to moving from one place to another place. It does not refer to going from one part of the scroll to another part of the scroll. For example, 2 Samuel 24 verse 8, after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. So the phrase gone through is translated, is the same Hebrew word translated run to and fro. Second Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of Yahuwah run to and fro throughout the whole earth. So again, that Hebrew word refers to going from one place, land space, to other place, uh, land space. So it's a movement, a physical movement. This is why I believe that was fulfilled because we, you cannot deny its fulfillment because during our time, indeed, transportation and communication has increased exponentially, right? Well, how about knowledge shall increase? Well, let's look at the Hebrew word knowledge. It is a Hebrew word 1847 dot, dot, and it means knowledge, perception, skill, discernment, understanding, wisdom. It doesn't specify and limit its definition to scriptural knowledge or godly wisdom, but to general knowledge, general wisdom. This is why when we look at how it's used in other parts of scripture, in Exodus 31, 1 to 3, then Yahuwah said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge 
in all kinds of crafts. Again, the word knowledge there in English is the same Hebrew word that was used in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. So the question was, could it, does it refer to advancement in transportation? I say yes. Does it refer to advancement in knowledge in general? I say yes. However, that's not the main point. That's not the main emphasis of the prophecy. Because when we, use, when we read Daniel 12, 4, there's something else that's even more important than that. Is it important for knowledge to increase? Yeah, right? Is it important for transportation to increase? Yeah, but there's something we need to also look into. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 12 and the verses 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. What do we need to understand about this prophecy? That part that says seal the book. What is that book that is instructed to be sealed? It is the book that Daniel received through a revelation from an angel sent by Yahuwah our God. See, this book is about the program of Israel. This is why we study Daniel 9 and we understand now about the 70 weeks of Daniel and how the people of Israel and their future is going to unfold, including the coming of the Antichrist, including the upcoming uh, persecution, and so many things. In the whole book of Daniel, he did not understand what it all meant. And so the angel told him, seal the book. But the time will come. The time of the end. Seal the book until the time of the end. The word seal means to close, to seal something. In other words, you will not understand how this is going to unfold because it's not yet time. When will it be understood? When will it begin to unfold? When the time comes, when many will run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. The time of the end. What is that end referred to there? End of the world? No, it's referring to Daniel 12. 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as that has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. What is that end referred to by the prophet Daniel? It refers to the time of the tribulation. And so what, that, what the Bible is saying is the closer we get to the tribulation, right? It's marked by the progress we get, we have when it comes to technology and knowledge increasing. And so when knowledge is increasing, when transportation is improving, at that time frame, we are also getting closer to the time of the tribulation. At that point, coinciding the progress made in knowledge, the progress made in transportation, at that point, there's also going to be progress made in understanding how the book of Daniel is unfolding. It was impossible for Daniel to understand what it all meant. You know why? Because a lot of the events mentioned in Daniel has, was not yet fulfilled during his time. When do you understand prophecy? 
after or before it's fulfilled? After it has been fulfilled. This is why what then what the Bible's telling us is when we get closer and closer to that time when the end is near, when the tribulation is near, we know we're going to get spiritual knowledge as well. Not just from the book of Daniel, I believe, but also from the rest of scripture. This is why we're not surprised there's so many people today, right, who are giving so much information, biblical knowledge, scriptural knowledge that we are all uh, benefiting from, okay? And so we're not surprised that this is going to happen. What else is going to happen right before the end comes? Daniel 12, 9 to 10. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And so, brothers and sisters, we are living in a time when knowledge has increased. You agree? We are living in a time when transportation has increased significantly. You agree, right? And so we are living in a time when we need to be open. Get that? We need to be open with the outpouring of wisdom, spiritual wisdom that God will grant people from different parts of the world. Because if we will be open to that, we will be wise. But if we will be closed-minded and say to ourselves, well, it was not taught by a particular person, we're going to be stagnant. Brethren, we need to open to the possibility that now, now, more than ever before, Yahuwah God is pouring His Spirit Throughout people all over the world. And all of us are benefiting from the increase, not just in general knowledge, but especially spiritual wisdom. Okay. All right. Let's go to the next question. Hi, Brother John. Hope all is well. My, hus my husband and I listened to the Bible History Project tonight. A few questions came up. What is the difference between the celebration of Passover and the communion? Is this tie to the Lord's Supper commonly practiced as communion, or is this just the fellowship done often? In some churches, they are encouraged to do communion where they serve the bread and the wine. Their pastor would say, do this in remembrance of me, Christ, and they do this every week or more often. Is this teaching in line with Yahuwah's teaching? So confusing. Thank you. Blessings to you. So the question is about the communion. How many here have heard of communion before? I think a lot of us have heard of communion. But for those who grew up in the INC, Galatian Increase, so they probably have not. But people who grew up in the Catholic Church or the Protestant churches, they probably heard communion. However, communion is differently understood depending on what your religious upbringing is. There's a Catholic communion. There's also a Protestant communion. And they're all different, which is why it's so confusing, right? But we also have a communion, quote-unquote communion, in the INC. We call it the Holy Supper. But the Catholics call it communion. Protestants call it communion. And we call it the Holy Supper. So what's, what are the differences? What are the similarities? Well, let's begin with communion. I mean, where did that all come from? Well, let's read the Catholic book. It's called History of the Mass. The Mass is the center of divine worship 
of the homage rendered to God by the church. It is the church's prayer par excellence. Christ's prayer offered by the church to God, the perfect praise and thanksgiving, the unique source of the divine gifts and graces of redemption, especially for those who participate in it completely by Eucharistic communion. The word Eucharistic simply means thanksgiving. And so the Catholic Church, I believe, were the first ones to coin the phrase communion, Eucharistic communion. It was at the center of their worship, which they call mass. So when the Catholic Church meets for mass, right, what do they have? They have the communion. It's called the Eucharistic communion. What is that all about? Let's go ahead and turn to another Catholic book, Faith of Our Fathers. This oblation of the new law is commonly called mass. The word mass is derived by some from the Hebrew term misak, which means a free offering. Others derive it from the word misa, which the priest uses when he announces to the congregation that divine service is over. The sacrifice of the mass is the consecration of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And the oblation of this body and blood to God by the ministry of the priest for a perpetual memorial of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The sacrifice of the mass is identical with that of the cross, both having the same victim and high priest, Jesus Christ. So what is the Eucharist? Well, according to this book, Faith of Our Fathers, which is an official Catholic book, well, they believe that the Eucharist or the, the so-called communion is an oblation. What is an oblation? An offering, a sacrificial offering that they present to who? To God. And so every time they would have mass and they would have communion or mass, they would offer a sacrifice to Yahuwah, our God. And who is being sacrificed every time they have communion? It is Yahushua, the Christ. How is this possible? How are they able to sacrifice Yahushua every time they have communion? Well, it says the sacrifice of the mass is the consecration of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And this process is what Catholic theologians call the transubstantiation. You've probably never heard of that. But it's a miraculous process of transformation. The body, the bread and the wine actually change substances. When you have the uh, communion in your mouth, it transforms into the actual flesh and blood of Yahusha HaMashiach. And so when the priests gives it to you and you begin to chew on it in your mouth and drink in your mouth, some miracle happens in your mouth and it becomes transformed into a substance different from wine, different from bread. It becomes the actual flesh and blood of Yahusha. And so in that sense, you are sacrificing Yahusha Christ to God again. This is a process called transubstantiation. But over the years, the way it was practiced changed. Before, they had the bread and they also had the wine, right, in the communion. But eventually, it changed. When what they ask about the church, again, a Catholic book, 
there were various reasons for the gradual growth of the custom of giving Holy Communion under the form of bread alone. The danger of spilling when it was given under the form of wine. The unsanitary and repugnant practice of all communicants drinking from a common chalice. The time-consuming process of distributing under both forms, which became quite impractical as the number of communicants increased and crowds filled the great cathedrals. And finally, the difficulty of preserving the blessed sacrament for communion under the form of wine. And so communion in the Catholic church evolved before it was done with bread and wine. Eventually it was done with using the bread alone. Why? Because it was impractical to also drink from a common chalice. So they practiced the communion with just bread, okay? And so when we look at the Catholic Church and how communion evolved, we can look at the following dates in 394 AD, mass was adopted as a daily celebration. So it's not just once a year, it became daily. 11th century AD, mass developed gradually as a sacrifice. It was no longer simply remembering the death and sacrifice of Yahushua. It was sacrificing Yahushua all over again, okay? 1215 AD, the dogma of transubstantiation was decreed by Pope Innocent III, declaring that the host miraculously transforms into the body of Christ. 1220 AD, the adoration of the, the wafer, the host decreed by Pope Honorius. 414 AD, the Roman church forbade the cup to the laity by instituting the communion of one kind in the Council of Constance. So we see the development of communion. So before it started out, what, like once a year, and then it became daily. Before it started out as remembering Yahushua, and then it became a sacrifice. Before it started out as being symbolical, then it becomes transubstantiation. It becomes the actual flesh and blood of Yahushua. And then it evolved into just having the bread, no longer drinking from the cup, okay? That's communion from 394 all the way to 414 AD. Do you know what happened in 1517? The Protestant Reformation began in 1517. So the Protestants separated from the Catholic Church and they looked at the communion. They said, wait a minute, this is wrong. Yeah, we will keep the communion, but we're going to go back to how it's supposed to be done. And so they rejected uh, some of it. Some of the Protestants rejected the daily celebration. Some opted for once a week, some once a year. Okay, some quarterly, some monthly. There's so many different denominational sects in Protestantism which is causing a part of the confusion because no, no two denominations from Protestant, Protestantism does it the same way, right? And, they 11, and then they, they looked at the transubstantiation, they rejected that. It is symbolical of the blood, symbolical of uh, the body. It doesn't become the actual flesh and blood of Yahushua, okay? And so, and then they said, no, we have to also have the drinking, not just the bread, we have to have both. And so when the Protestants separate from Catholicism, communion also changed. And so you have the communion of the Catholic Church and in the communion of the different sects of the Protestant 
religion. Well, how about us? We who are of the assembly of Yahushua, what are we going to practice? We're going to strictly practice what the Bible teaches. Okay. And so what is that? Do we believe that when we do the Passover, we are again going to sacrifice Yahushua? Is that the purpose of the Passover? Can, can Yahushua be offered again as a sacrifice? Hebrews 7.27. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Yahushua did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. So is there need for Yahushua to be sacrificed again? Is that what we're doing when we are celebrating or observing Yahushua's Passover? No, Yahushua does not need to be sacrificed. He sacrificed himself once and for all. When it says once and for all, does it need to be repeated? Because if you will repeat the sacrifice, it means the sacrifice was not effective. But was it effective? Absolutely. It was the perfect sacrifice. Why is it the perfect sacrifice? Hebrews 10, 10 to 11. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Yahushua Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. And so those who practice, those who believe when they conduct and fulfill what Yahushua taught in Matthew 26, which we call Yahushua's Passover, when they believe that to be sacrificing Yahushua again to God, that's no longer biblical. It's not sacrificing Yahushua. It is remembering his death and suffering, commemorating his sacrifice by means of that ceremony. And so how about um, having just the bread? Is that what we're going to practice? Are we going to have the bread and also the cup? Or are we just going to have the bread? Let's read Matthew 26, 26, 28. As they were eating, Yahushua took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. So how do we observe Yahushua's Passover? Are we going to have just bread? Is that what we're going to practice? No, because if we're going to do that, we're taking a significant part of what Yahushua said. We have to do both. We partake of the bread, we partake of the cup, we do that together because of our faith in Yahushua's command. Take this and eat it. And then he says, each of you drink from it. And so we must practice the same thing. Well, how often are we going to do it? Right? And is that something that the Bible also teaches? Well, the Bible does not specifically say that. But before we go there, um, there was, it was mentioned a while back about trans, transubstantiation. Do you know where that comes from? The belief that Yahushua's, that the bread and the wine becomes the actual flesh and blood of Yahushua. 
It actually came from John 6, 53 to 56. So Yahushua said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And so they take John 6, 53 to 56, and they take that to have a literal meaning. And so to have this become possible, they need to believe in the miracle of transubstantiation. That is, when you eat the bread, it becomes the actual flesh. And when you drink the wine, it becomes the actual blood. Because what does Yahushua say? If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have, and you will be raised back to life on the last day. How many here want eternal life? How many here want to be raised back on the last day? Well, then we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What does that mean? What does it mean? Is Yahushua referring to physical eating of his flesh and blood? No. He was speaking in metaphors. What's the proof in John 6? We're in chapter 6. So we're within context. For it is my father's will that all who see his son and believe in him should have eternal life. How can we have eternal life? By believing in him. I will raise them up at the last day. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. And so when he said he is the bread of life, he was speaking metaphorically in the same sense when he said, he who eats my flesh and drinks of my blood, he was speaking metaphorically. What was he pointing to? He was pointing to the events of the Old Testament, like the manna, the sacrifice on the altar, the pouring of blood, and the sacrifice of animals. Yahushua was saying and speaking to the Jewish people, all those things that happened in the Old Testament, the manna, the atonement sacrifices, that pertains to me. The work of God is for you to believe in me. That's in John chapter 6. And so the whole point of that is to convince people to go to Yahushua, to believe in him, to follow him, to be his disciple. That's how you have eternal life. It doesn't mean eating his actual flesh and drinking from his blood. It was simply Yahushua saying that the fulfillment of the sacrifice of his flesh and his blood was fulfilled so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And so the purpose was not to, to, again, sacrifice Yahushua, but to remember his sacrifice for our sake. Okay, so we don't believe that when we partake of the bread and drink of the wine, that it becomes the actual flesh and blood of Yahushua in our mouth. Okay, it simply refers to his blood and his body. Well, how often are we going to participate or observe Yahushua's Passover? Well, according to Apostle Paul, this is what he says in Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Yahushua took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. The same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant 
between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes back. So how often are we to observe uh, Yahusha's Passover? Eat the bread and drink the wine. Apostle Paul said, do this to, rem I mean, Yahusha said, do this to remember me. And so the purpose of doing this is to remember the sacrifice of Yahusha, so that we can pass along this significant, we can call it the most significant event in the history of man, to our children, or to commemorate it. Isn't that what it means? To commemorate it. And so, is it wrong to do it every day? I don't see why it's wrong. Is it wrong to do it weekly? I don't see that's, that it's wrong. Is it wrong to do it monthly? No. Why do we do it once a year? Well, we're following the pattern of how the Passover was observed in the Old Testament, right? Take note, in the New Testament, there's no specific law or command about frequency. Its purpose is for us to remember, to commemorate. And when it comes to remembering the Passover of God's wrath, when Yahuwah sent the angel of death, which took away the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, how often were they asked to Remember that in a ceremony. Let's go to Exodus 13, 8 to 10. On the seventh day, you must explain to your children, I am celebrating what Yahuwah did for me when I left Egypt. This annual festival, right? Not weekly, not monthly. How often? Annual. What does that mean? Once a year. Will be a visible sign to you, like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of Yahuwah. With a strong hand, Yahuwah rescued you from Egypt. So observe the decree of this festival at the appointed time each year. And so for the people of Israel to remember what Yahuwah's strong hand did for Israel. They were to observe the festival once a year. And so following that pattern... We also observe it once a year to correspond to Yahuwah's Passover because Yahushua instituted the meal, the, the, uh, the Passover meal on the Passover, right? And so we also follow that pattern. Having said that, do we say it's wrong if one is to do it weekly? I don't think that's wrong. But we, as an assembly, we observe it together in a show of unity. We do it once a year. Okay, all right, now let's go with one more question. Yeah, why did Yahusha use the fig tree to relate to the end of days? Here's the question, dear brother John, I have a question about the fig tree. Why did Christ Yahusha use the fig tree to relate to the end of days? Thank you, Paul. Let's go to Matthew 24, 32 to 35. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. You know, the fig tree can teach us a lot. And the reason why Yahushua is teaching us about the fig tree is because there's something that we need to understand. What is that? It's right there. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation 
will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So here's Yahushua, and he's speaking in the context of Matthew 24. And if you look at Matthew 24, Yahushua is speaking about what's going to happen to Israel. Okay, it starts in Matthew 24, 1 to 2, talking about what's going to happen to the temple, going to be completely destroyed, right? And then he says what's going to happen afterwards, including the wars and rumors of wars, pestilences. And then he talks about the abomination of desolation. And then he goes to 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. What can we learn from the parable of the fig tree? It's very simple. Because when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, just use logic, what does that mean? It means that summer is near. And so to what then does he associate, associate that to? In verse 33, the application. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. What is near? What is at the doors? The second advent of Yahushua to establish his millennial kingdom. That will be near, right? And so Yahushua says, when you look at the fig tree, and it's becoming tender, you know within just a matter of time, what's gonna happen? Summer's coming. In the same way you know this to be true, when you see all these things, you know it is near at the doors. And so what is that signal? Because he says, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. What specifically are we gonna see? And what does it mean that it is near? How near? It's going to be so near once it happens. Because when you see the branch of a fig tree uh, becoming tender and it's beginning to sprout leaves, within just a matter of how many days? I mean, we cannot really, I mean, it depends on the fig tree, right? It, but you can, you, you have like a span of time, maybe months, maybe weeks, but you have a span of time. You have a season of time, and after that, you know summer's coming, right? And so depending on the fig tree, it can be, it can vary. It can vary. There's no exact 30 days, okay? After 30 days, when you see the leaves sprout, it's going to be summer. It's different for every fig tree, and so there's no definitive time. But when it comes to general uh, timing events, you know when it's sprouting, you know what season it is, right? And so Yahushua is saying, that span of time between the event that you see and the second advent of Yahushua is only going to span one generation at most. At most. In other words, it will not exceed one generation because he says this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Which generation was Yahushua talking to? Uh, talking to? Was he referring to that generation that he was speaking with when he was here on earth? No. The generation that will see this event, that when you see this event, it's like the fig tree has already become tender and put forth leaves. What is that event? Matthew 24, 15, 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. What specifically is that event he was talking about? It's when you see the abomination of desolation. What is that? 
That's when the Antichrist is going to go to Jerusalem. And so there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem already. The red heifer has already been sacrificed. The ashes has anointed the, uh, the third temple. And here comes the Antichrist. He will uh, go to the, uh, the temple and desecrate the temple called the abomination of desolation. When you see that event, Yahusha says, you know it's very near. It will not last a generation. The generation of that time period will see the second advent of Yahusha HaMashiach. Well, why does he use the fig tree? Matthew 24, 32 to 35. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. In actuality, it wasn't just the fig tree that he used. He used the fig tree, the days of Noah, and the thief in the night. And so the fig tree starts with, I believe, uh, 30, uh, 32 to 35, right? The fig tree. And then he uses the days of Noah, the thief in the night. Now, why the fig tree? There are some who say the fig tree represents Israel. That's true. And so there are those who are saying that the young fig tree represents new Israel that was born 1948. And the generation is about 100 years old. So 1948 was 100. What is that? 1948 was 100. Is that 2048? 2048 is supposedly the second advent of Yahushua. But I'm not going to go there. Yeah, it could be. It could be that the fig tree represents Israel. However, Luke 21 29 to 32, that same proclamation of Yahusha, Luke adds something to it. Then he gave them this illustration. Notice the fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know, without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things take place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. And so why did Yahusha use the fig tree then? Because the fig tree can be understood by the Jewish people. The main audience of Matthew 24 are those who are going to go through the tribulation and be converted and believe and accept Messiah, Yahusha, as their king, namely the Jewish nation, the Israelites. And the Israelites knew a lot about trees. You know why? Because they pattern their calendar according to the agricultural landscape. And so according to the reaping and sowing of harvests. You notice that? This is why they have annual festivals. How many festivals do they have? Seven. Remember? And so the fig tree corresponds to Israel's religious calendar that Yahuwah instituted or gave to them. Why was that significant? Well, Apostle Paul says this in Thessalonians 5, 1 to 6, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as, as a thief in the night. But when they say peace and peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. 
we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So according to Apostle Paul, why was the fig tree significant? Because the Jewish people and the people really basically during that time, they followed the agricultural development of the land, reaping and sowing the times and the seasons, especially the Jewish people. Why? Because they followed the calendar corresponding to different seasons of the land. This is why when you look at some of the events that took place during their festivals, how many festivals again? Seven. Don't you know, didn't you notice that in the festivals of Yahuwah, significant events took place? For example, Passover. What happened in Passover? Yahusha died. The day of unleavened bread, the festival of unleavened bread. What happened on that day? Yahusha was buried. Feast of first fruits. What happened? Yahusha resurrected. Pentecost. What happened? The Spirit was sent, right? What happens after the first four feasts? The last three feasts. What are they again? Trumpets. And then the day of atonement, and then the feast of tabernacles. So if the first four feasts correspond to significant events that Yahushua performed, is it possible that the next uh, significant events of Yahushua's ministry in the future will also follow that timetable of the festivals? Because what remains is the, the uh, uh, trumpets, and then Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And so significant things happen during these seasons, during these times. And so Yahushua gave the fig tree to tell us about the timing, that there's a, 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 a time element, that there's a an allotted amount of time, okay, the season. So we can know, we, we can know in general when we are close to the second advent of Yahusha. However, after saying that, look at what look what look at what Yahusha adds in Matthew 24, 36. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son Himself, only the Father. No. So the seasons, we can know. But the day and hour, we cannot know. How does Yahusha illustrate that we cannot know the day? We cannot know the hour. We may know the seasons, but we cannot know the day and the hour. Matthew 24, 37 to 41. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. And so according to Yahushua, how did he illustrate that no one knows the day? He likened it to the days of Noah. What happened during the days of Noah? 
many people perished because they did not know which day the flood is going to come. And so instead of preparing, what did they do? They focused instead on eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, instead of preparing for the flood. And in many respects, it's very, very similar to what is going on in our life today, right? Instead of being focused on the, the arrival of Yahusha, people instead are focused on their life here on earth. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to live, right? But our priority must always be the coming of Yahusha HaMashiach. And so Yahusha gave this illustration to tell us we don't know the exact day. And he also said we don't know the exact hour. So what illustration did he give for that? Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so according to Yahushua, we do not know the hour of his coming. Just like we do not know when the thief will come. Let's say, for example, we know the thief is going to come this day. If we know that knowledge, good for you. But still, you have to know what hour, right? So if you knew a thief was going to come this day, what are you going to do? You're going to keep watch the whole day, right? Because you don't know the hour, right? The thing is, we don't even know the day. But if we know the season, guess what? That whole season, what should we be doing? We should be preparing. And this is the message of Yahushua in Matthew 24, 42, 43. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had not known uh, what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Watch, therefore, for you do not know. Therefore, 44, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the point of Yahushua is this. The reason why he used the fig tree is to give us a general time frame so that we can be watchful, right? How watchful? Be ready at all time. Because we don't know the day, we don't know the hour. And how can we be ready? 45 to 47, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household. To give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. And so how can we be ready at all times for the return of our king? The Bible says we need to be ready by doing what we have been called to do. Brothers and sisters, the one thing we don't want to happen is when Yahusha comes, we are found resting on our laurels instead of working for the sake of his kingdom. We should be found doing what we have been called to do. We should be found doing what we have been gifted to do by means of the spirit. Because all of us, we have spiritual gifts. We have responsibilities and duties 
for the sake of the assembly, let us fulfill them. And it's a great day if when Yahushua comes, we're found doing what we're supposed to be doing. Because when that happens, the Bible says, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Because Yahushua will make him or her ruler over all his goods. And so the message of the fig tree is this. Be prepared because it is near. And let us do our best to always be ready for the appearing of our master. The truth is Matthew 24 really pertains to those who are going to go through the tribulation. Hopefully we will not go through the tribulation because there are those who will be taken by Yahusha, who will be raptured, quote-unquote. And hopefully, uh, none of us will have to go through that. But if in the event there are some who will, let us always keep in mind to always be faithful to Yahusha. And there's a timetable that is taking place. And let us be focused on the work at hand so that we can always be ready for the second advent of our king. We will talk more about the details of the tribulation and the appearing of Yahusha when we get to Revelation. We just don't want to use it here. Uh, we don't want to take the specific parts of that. We kind of alluded to it here, but there are some parts of Matthew 24 that we have not yet told you about, but we will wait for Revelation. Okay, all right, that is all. And let us stand for our prayer. Everlasting and merciful Abba, yes. Yahuwah Almighty, yes. thank you so much for blessing your people. Amen. We know that the spirit of the Antichrist yes. is alive and well, yes. looking for instruments to propagate its evil desires. Amen. Help us to be alert, to be on watch. Yes, help us to test all things yes. and help us to be loyal to you and to your beloved son. Amen. Our King Yahushua, Yes, we have Lord. faith in you. We so long for your glorious appearing. Yes, Remember Lord. us when you come back. Yes. Bring us to your kingdom and yes. help us that we will be found by you. Yes. Doing and fulfilling our given responsibilities. Amen. May you empower and strengthen us and prepare us for our upcoming Passover meal that we will share with you. Amen. Father, thank you so much for listening to our prayers. Yes. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.